Hey there. Welcome to Twins Talk Clear-Cut Communication. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway, and hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. Today, we are coming to you from Want to Disagree, Tennessee. And I'm Bob, and it's good to be back with you. And uh, we had several folks uh, who are following us write in or make comment, and we wanted to speak to a couple of those. In fact, I felt in terms of one person, we probably should have responded last week because it fit so much better with that particular uh, podcast, but nonetheless wanted to make sure he knew that we were uh, hearing what he had to say and what he was interested in. Fellow Ron, who both rated and uh, gave us a review. By the way, those of you that are listening to the podcast and you'd be open to it, we'd love to have you rate the podcast on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify and to write a review if you'd be willing to do that. We always love to hear that. Love to hear people uh, comment on uh, the good things we're doing. Anyway. And you meant to say you wanted them to rate us four or five. Oh, no, we only want them to rate us five. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, Ron, you raised a question. How do you deal with people who interrupt or interpret, I'm sorry, interpret nodding, not only as continuance, but as agreement. And I want to throw that one to you, Ray. What's your response to that? Well, I don't think that changes the usefulness of nodding in general. But if you find someone who every time you nod, they then uh, somehow let you know that they're glad you're agreeing, uh, I'd stop nodding (laughs) because I want them, I don't want them to go there. It's natural for people when you nod to think, ah, yes, yes, you agree. But that's not what you mean by it. What you mean by it is go ahead. Don't stop now. You can keep going. But if you do find someone who every time you nod, they interpret that as an agreement, uh, then I would use that less because it's it's countering what you really want to have them understand the behavior as. It's not meant to state agreement. The other observation Ron made, and certainly like that observation, he said his view was that Jesus was an amazing listener and particularly good at asking probing questions. And I I would agree with that. I think when I, uh, at least my review of the Bible has told me that uh, Jesus was remarkable and serves as a really good model when we think of what's key in conversations and how we approach conversations and the notion of just uh, asking good questions and continuing to probe and explore with the person we're talking with. I would say there as well that one of the things I find interesting about the questions Jesus asked is they had a depth of value that even the person responding could have been unaware of. A lot of times they thought they were answering the question straightforwardly, with, but or weren't really responding to what Jesus was really asking. So his questions were so, in some cases, so profound that they went beyond the understanding of the person being asked. Great observation. And, and my reaction is, wouldn't that be wonderful if we as listeners got that good that we could even approach that, approximate the idea of being able to observe things and ask questions, cause the people to go even deeper or be unaware of how deep the question, where that is really coming from. Exactly. And then the last uh, observation Ron made was about the model that we use, the one that runs from uh, unconscious incompetence to unconscious competence. And he said, you've applied that to listening. Couldn't that be applied to many other interpersonal behaviors or many other behaviors? Response to that? Oh, yeah. Well, it it was introduced as a model of skill acquisition. So anything a person considers a skill, 
that model applies to. I use the example of driving. I think if you're learning a skill in music, playing a piano, playing a guitar, that model is still totally applicable. If you're learning to type, anything that's a set of behaviors that produces a desired outcome, a skill, that model's perfectly useful. That model is a great example of how you move through uh, the early stages into the more advanced stages of skill development. And one of the things that us using the model implicitly suggests is that we believe communication is a skill and that communication can be developed. That is, you're just not born with a certain way of communicating, even though we talked about beliefs that underlie communication and how those are part of who we are. The ability to communicate and the skill of communicating is one we see as as important in terms of you developing that and being able to get better at that. Sure. So maybe to move on to, oh, wait, I was going to move on to this episode, but you've got a couple other shout outs. I've got some shout outs. Uh, Very early in our very earliest uh, podcast, I shouted out to my granddaughter, Jane, because she was even then interested in listening. I have two special people who are now engaged in listening. One is my grandson, Miles, Miles Patrick Doyle, who listens regularly to the podcast. And how old is Miles? Miles is seven. Never. And Miles asks, in a manner, he asks an interesting question. And that is very often he reads to his grandmother and I, and he heard your two-minute rule. And he wondered if I had to interrupt him every two minutes if he was going to read to me. And I said, no, Miles, I consider you reading as more of a presentation and less of a conversation. So I will never interrupt you. Grandma won't interrupt you. The only time we would potentially interrupt is if you needed aid, if you wanted us to help, then we might. But uh, so don't worry about that, Miles. You're not going to get interrupted. Miles, thank you. We are delighted that you are listening to our podcast. And no, the two-minute rule does not apply to your reading. I'm going to expand the range of our listeners by one year because I also want to give a shout out to my granddaughter, Ellie. Wow. Ellie Six. And Ellie wow. listened now to podcasts. And her interest was more in you and I. And she wanted to confirm that I was older than you. So she said, Papa, are you older than Uncle Bob? And I said, yes, by one minute. And she said, okay, I just wanted to make sure of that. So both to Ellie and to Miles, just wanted to say hi and that your feedback and your listening is very much appreciated. Ellie, I just want you to know, as you listen to this particular podcast, that that one minute has got a lot of issues surrounding it. So the next time you visit with Papa, you explore with him all the issues that are related to that one minute difference. But if we don't get on with the podcast, we're (laughs) talking about kids the entire time. We promised uh, in a couple previous episodes, we would explore with you some of the more advanced skills of listening. And what we mean by advanced skills is not that they're particularly difficult but they are not often used by anyone except the most advanced listeners. And they typically have an extremely significant impact on the speaker. And so, Ray, I think I'd like to invite you to kick this conversation off and maybe speak to a couple of the behaviors, and we'll just work our way through them. Okay. Well, there are, to me, to my way of thinking, there are three types of verbal responses when listening that give back to the person speaking what they shared with you. The first one I will mention is restatement. That's exactly what the phrase means. You're giving back to the person word for word what they shared for you. It's very much like a tape recording. You're trying to recall exactly word for word verbatim what you heard. Now, that that communicates to the person speaking that you picked up what they communicated. That has a tendency to be a very good clarifier in that sometimes you get some say, oh, yeah, that's what I said, but that's not what I meant. So you're giving them a chance, you're checking reality with them with that kind of restatement, giving them a chance to make sure that what they're saying is what they want to communicate. A second kind of response where you're giving back information to the speaker is what's called paraphrasing. 
Paraphrasing and restatement are very much alike, very similar. The difference is that when you're paraphrasing, you're giving back to the person, back to them the content of what they said, but not in the same words. You're making it a bit different so they hear from another angle. It's really giving them a chance to hear what others might be hearing that they either intended or didn't intend. Very often, both of these can start with the same opening. So what I'm hearing you say is, and then you give them word for word, or what I'm hearing you say is, and then you paraphrase it. You give it your own words and what you heard the content to mean to you. In fact, would we recommend that if people want to try these out and they're not quite sure how to get into them, that that very phrase, what I'm hearing you say, is a great lead in, that that's one that we should just practice on and short of having anything else to feel comfortable using that? Oh, absolutely. That's a, that's a universal, tried and true introduction to paraphrasing, to restatement. Now, the third type of verbal response to the speaker is what's called reflection. Now, this one is more difficult because you really have to be attuned to the entire context of what's being said. Because in reflection, you're going to interpret the speaker's feelings in light of what they're saying. Uh, you're going beyond the content to their emotional state. And it could sound much like this. So what I'm what I'm experiencing is that you're pretty angry about that, or that seems very confusing to you, or that's much more complicated than you hoped it would be. That distance in the relationship has become surprising to you. Now, they never said that. They never used any of those words. They never mentioned anger. They never mentioned distance. But that's what you picked up in terms of how they were feeling. And so when you're reflecting, you're giving back to the person a mirror of what you experienced them feeling. Now, to me, the value of that, and it's very critical, very important, is that the person now not only feels heard, they feel understood. Hmm. When you can give back the person what they're feeling and it's accurate, they they agree with you, they concede that, yeah, that is what I'm feeling. They now feel understood without being judged. That's a, that is really a serious gift you're giving someone as a listener. And yet paraphrasing, or I'm sorry, reflecting seems a bit riskier on the part of the person who's attempting to do it. There does seem to be a greater risk to that. Is that correct? I mean, or is that just something we make up when we're thinking about it? Well, I think the risk is, the, the greater risk is that you could be wrong. <laughs> when you're giving back the person what you're, you're unlikely to be wrong about that. I mean, that's pretty easy to be accurate on. But when you're doing the reflecting, there are times you're guessing at what they're feeling or you're, you're experiencing what they're feeling through you. And if you're not careful, you're giving them back what you're feeling rather than what they're feeling. And so there is a greater risk that you'll be wrong, but I think the risk is worth it if you want to deepen the relationship. The one thing that the other two responses don't do is they don't have much influence on the quality or the depth of the relationship. It generally doesn't change the nature of the relationship. When you get reflecting right, when you do that effectively, you will increase the bandwidth of the relationship. The, the relationship will feel stronger. It will feel thicker. It will feel of a more resilient quality, have a greater tensile strength. So as a former clinician, when I could reflect what people were feeling, they felt very strongly that I understood them. They felt very confident that they could share what they were feeling with very low risk. So you're, you're right. The reflection has a greater risk of error, but the reward, the return, if you, if you get good at it, if you get it right, is uh, significant. So if I'm a listener out there and I'm saying, I want to take these on, I've been treating seriously several of the things that you've said. Now you're talking about these particular skills. It's probably something I've not thought about a lot, but if I'm thinking about it now, this notion of reflection is really a unique skill that creates a sense of understanding in the other 
that you really do understand me, probably more so than anything else. So it's worth the effort. I'm, what I'm going to say is, hey, if you haven't tried this, it is worth the effort because it can create something that no other particular behavior can create near as uh, significantly or as impactfully, right? Yeah, no, no, I think, uh, yeah, that's that's how I hear it. That's how I intended it. Okay. And, and you want to be mindful of which relationships you choose to do this with. I think if you're talking about family relationships, important friendships, if you're talking about parental relationships, those are relationships that you want to make sure are strong, Mm -hmm. they're healthy, and they have the kind of width, the kind of depth that you need them to have. Now, I'm not so sure I'd use this at work. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I want to get into reflecting at work because then people begin to believe that I'm I'm invested in their emotional well-being, which becomes a little bit dicey. There, I think the risk is people begin to believe you're their friend or that you're committed to them beyond results, beyond the boundaries of the professional relationship. So that I often will tell managers, people in leadership roles, not to do a lot of this. Paraphrase, for sure. Uh, be alert, for sure. But limit the amount of time you spend letting people know that you're aware of what they feel all the time. And like several of the other podcasts, we've talked about all of these behaviors as real work that it takes work to do them. And so my reaction to what I hear you say is that you want to make sure both you should and you want to invest the energy and the work it's going to take in the other to use these kinds of behaviors because the connecting points become real. And then it takes, it's about the energy that's involved in the relationship. And am I willing to invest that kind of energy? So the closer the relationships are to us, the more important they are to us, then this skill becomes even that much more relevant and that much more important in terms of us being seen as a good listener, right? Well, again, we often get drawn into conversations that have an emotional problem that's going to be shared. And if we become too quick to explore that through this kind of reflective method, people begin to see us as a confidant in ways that may or may not be appropriate for us. Like you were saying, Bob, I think that if they feel like I'm always going to be able to be there for them when I know, in fact, I'm not, that's an, that would be an unfortunate expectation to informally create. You know, it's worth, it's really worth the effort to spend the time on these particular behaviors that you've been identifying and unpacking. We've got just a few minutes left, believe it or not, in the podcast. Wanted to turn a corner and talk a little bit about the notion of summarizing, which is not in the same category as the three behaviors you've talked about, but a very important skill in conversations that tend to run at any length at all. One of my observations that I tend to put summarizing in the context of small groups versus one-on-one relationships, but it's probably equally applicable in one-on-one relationships. About the longest period of time, we can absorb information and hold on to it without somehow clarifying it or bringing it into focus is about five to seven minutes. And so one of the things that I encourage lots of leaders to do, particularly people who are leading group discussions, is to be thinking every five to seven minutes, you need to figure out a way to summarize the conversation to date. What's been said? How do I bring it together? Et cetera, et cetera. In fact, I was looking for trying to think of of an analogy. And if we were to think of a conversation as a rope, a long, continuous rope. What the summarizing does is it ties a knot in that rope at that moment in time so we can use that as leverage. So when I think about people that climb, several knots are much better than one spread 20 feet apart because it gives me a chance to have leverage in the conversation and hold on to certain things. So the simple principle of summarizing is just simply to make sure at moments in the conversation, most likely more often than you're used to doing, uh, and I'm suggesting every five to seven minutes, you would make some kind of comment as a listener that says, if I'm hearing us say, here are the three things that we've talked about 
to this point. Am I right? And give people a chance to realize that out of all that five to seven minute conversation, it comes down to those two or three points. And then we can move on. And then we do it again and we go all the way through. Let me, let me, let me wonder if there's something, Bob. If I'm in a group and I'm not the leader, I'm not facilitating the group that day, or I'm not the manager who's in charge of that group that day, is it appropriate for me to summarize? I mean, is there any chance that I'm threatening the person who does feel in charge if I suddenly say, okay, then just so I'm getting this right, is is this what I'm hearing that we've said thus far? Do you see any issue there? I think there's a chance. I think if the if the leader is not comfortable with who they are, if they're not comfortable with how the conversation's unfolding, if they're a person who's not oriented towards facilitating conversations as much as dictating what's being said, then I think you run some risk. On the other hand, I think much like everything else we've been talking about in terms of risk reward, I think the payoff is great. If you're not the formal leader, you do begin to exert some informal leadership by doing this very thing, that you are being a leader in a group. And so if you say it's worth that risk, and if I'll even go further and say, if as a person you say, I want to demonstrate leadership in groups, I want to demonstrate that I want to be a leader among my peers, then one clear way of doing that is to do that, not as the formal leader, but as an informal participant in the group. And to say something like, you know, what I'm hearing it say is this, this, and this. Are we all on that on that page? Is that where we are? I've experienced when I'm responsible leading group and facilitating groups that I always appreciate immensely. Someone in the group who's not charged with doing it, stepping up and doing that very thing. So although I think there is some risk, my general reaction is in most situations, it would be advisable. Would you react the same way? Uh, I would. I think all I'm wondering is if I have to consider the context and who's in leadership. If there is a leader that's going to be threatened by that, then probably even though it would be good for you to do it, and the group might benefit from it, uh, there may be more risk than reward. But if you've got a leader who's one who is pretty open and wants people to take greater responsibility and wants people to step up, then by all means, this is a great way to do it. It is a great way for you to increase your influence. It's a great way for you to make a contribution to the group at very little risk, very little cost. You know, I'd go one step further and say, because we're so committed to people working at being better listeners and being perceived as better listeners, I'd even say with that leader who's not prone, not open, not inclined to have people do that kind of activity, to maybe even say to the leader, would you be willing to kind of summarize where you think we are right now? Now, again, everything's a risk. We talked about the strategic communicator realizing that they're making choices. So it is about making that choice, as you said. But I would be reluctant to let it go if I think, you know, this really does benefit the group, whether the leader knows it or not. So I'm going to make an attempt. And if I don't feel comfortable me summarizing and thereby kind of showing some level of leadership, maybe me even ask the leader and said, you know, would you be willing to summarize the points that were where you think we are right now? So that person who wants to be the one who does all the talking can uh, at least uh, say, okay, here's what I think is going on. But like you said, all that has a potential blowback that you want to be aware of, at least as you engage in these kinds of processes. One last thing, and we're almost out of time. We had said one of the behaviors clarifying, and that's very close to clarifying questions that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. And that's, in my mind, really focused on content. Uh, it really is about helping people understand where are we, how do we clarify, how do we push it to a deeper level, how do we uncover some things that are going on. That can be done in the form of questions, clarifying questions that we brought up before. To clarify, could be making a statement. So what, you know, it's back to the paraphrasing. What I'm hearing us say is this, is that right? 
then where do we go next? And so what we're really doing when we work at clarifying, which is very akin to summarizing, is we're trying to bring clarity to the content of the conversation. We're trying to bring the conversation into focus to give it some sense of clearness that everybody can see and grab onto. And so those would be two that I would add to this overall conversation of advanced skills. And again, like we said, they're not advanced because you can't do them. They're not all that difficult. It's just that we don't do them. And in some cases, we feel that by doing them, there's a slightly larger risk involved. Now, Ray, I guess I'd throw it back to you and ask anything you think about a way of summarizing what we've talked about in this session that people could hang on to? Well, I, I think our commitment today was to bring some closure to the idea of how you best listen, how you best respond to someone speaking or to a group. And the last few podcasts have given listening a context, given it a range of behaviors. And so I think that this was our commitment to closing that current conversation on listening as a skill uh, with the intent to move on with the, I think our next uh, commitment uh, is to talk about the issues of, say, conflict, uh, conflict ma- management, uh, confrontation, because that's a communication area that is really, most people are really alarmed by. And so I think we need to, we'll be going forward by spending some time on that. The twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or a situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. You can reach us at twintalk 46 at gmail.com. Remember, no communication problem is so big, so complicated, or so intense that we can't make it larger, more complex, or more dangerous than it already is, almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the score that both began and ended this podcast. 